Chapter 12 Strawberry Jam Renoir and Isaiah led Durant into the old horse pasture east of the British encampment. On a small rise, they stopped and lowered their kits to the ground at the edge of a well-used fire pit. From behind them, James Cox's American accent piped up. Excuse me, S Sergeant Major? Think it'd be okay if I bunk up with y'all tonight, too? Renoir and Isaiah shared a look. Isaiah rolled his eyes. Renoir laughed. But of course, Renoir said, we do not stand on ceremony, and our standards are quite low. As you can see by Corporal Taylor, we are even content to let Americans keep our company. The shadows lengthening toward evening seemed to follow Francois as he walked through the rows of British infantry tents, the lone black face in a sea of young white men cleaning rifles and chatting it up around their individual cook fires. He was headed for Alfie Andrews, the grinning fat bastard of a quartermaster, who was directing his lads in unloading crates from the heavy stacks on his munitions wagon. Francois approached. Pardon. Sergeant, do you have eight millimeter rounds for my Bertier rifle? Alfie nixed it with a look. No luck here, Johnny. All we've got's 303s. He looked Francois up and down, then glanced around before lowering his voice and continuing. I tell you what, though, pal. I might get talked into a trade for that sword of yours. Francois's hand unconsciously grasped the hilt of the blade at his hip. Alfie went on with a grin, pointing toward a stack of crates. I'll trade you an Enfield and as much ammunition as you can carry. No. Alfie laughed. Hard bargain, are you? Right. How about a fucking Lewis gun and three drum magazines? Francois shook his head again and began to withdraw. Alfie grabbed his shoulder. That sword would be one hell of a conversation piece back home in Lancashire. Hold on then, Johnny. How about a flamethrower? No, merci. My cutlass is not up for trade. Alfie shrugged, annoyed he could not make the steal. Your cutlass, eh? <laughs> then piss on off, because I can't help you, mate. If you won't help yourself. Francois kept his temper checked and moved on, ambling through the camp toward the busy field kitchen. As he approached, Davy Horner, the scrawny, bustling cook, caught sight of him and smiled a gap-toothed grin of recognition. Well, if it ain't Johnny Francais. Francois smiled back. Hello, cook. I come for your jam. Davy's brow furrowed. How's that? You say I bring you the heads of Jerry, you give me the pots of jam. Davy blinked slow. The grin began to vacate. He blinked again. You can't be bloody serious. I am always a man of my words, cook. You tell me to bring you the tete, I bring you the tete. Davy's grin had almost fallen off his face. You brought me what? Francois smiled bigger and held aloft his sandbag. The Eds. Le tête, no? Davies stammered, grin 100% gone. Are you bloody insane, mate? I was piss-taken. Did I not have fucking jokes on the Dark Continent? It was Francois's turn to lower his grin. When it disappeared from his scarred face, 
There was no uncertainty about its absence. Lord Joku, we make bargain. I bring the heads. You give the jam. Francois emptied the bag onto the ground. The four heads tumbled onto the grass. Joseph Friedrich Schmidt's eyes rolled in their sockets, seeming for a moment to focus on Davy. Davy leapt back, glancing around at the handful of witnesses to this horror. Jesus Christ, put him away, you want jam? I'll give you jam. He grabbed an entire wooden box of jam tins and shoved them at Francois. But take those fucking heads and don't ever come around my kitchen again, you bloody savage. Francois gathered up the heads and dumped them back into the bag. He picked up the jam, chuckling at the cook's discomfiture. I am sorry we have misunderstanding. Thank you for the jam, cook. In the courtyard, Halstead stubbed out his second cigarette. There was a long moment as he checked Diesel's neck for a pulse. Nothing there to be found. The weak tattoo had come to its final conclusion, mercifully aided by the morphine. Halstead closed the dead man's eyes. Your turn, Padre. Chaplain Davies knelt by Diestel. He rested a palm upon the man's chest. There was an unfamiliar reverence, an earnest gracefulness to the farewell that he had not felt in some time. As you are outwardly anointed with this oil, so may our Heavenly Father grant you the inward anointing of the Holy Spirit. Of his great mercy may he forgive you your sins, release you from suffering, and restore you to wholeness and strength. May he deliver you from all evil, preserve you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Davy's thumb ran the stations of the cross. Then he and Halstead rose and looked down on the pale dead man. Diesel, so powerful and haughty, arrogant and certain in life, now looked like a ghostly wax figure in death, eyelids pressed shut, mouth agog. Caitlin came down the steps behind them, carrying blankets and a sheet. She set the woolen blankets down and opened the sheet, casting it out. It billowed like the sail of some great clipper ship, catching, then losing the wind as it sank to the ground, ignominious in its collapse. She began to pull the edges over Diesel's corpse. Halstead reached out a hand and gently stopped her. Leave it, nurse. I've got it. Caitlin let go of the sheet, and he took it, billowing it up again and letting it fall. This time, it covered the dead man head to toe. The good doctor had a fair amount of practice at the art of hiding death with a semblance of grace. Caitlin picked up the blankets, heading for the front gates and the field beyond it. From the second-story window, Ungo looked on as Halstead spread the sheet over Diestel's corpse. He filled a glass of water from a pitcher and turned to the table where Wolfgang Strothman and Major Wilkins prepared to dine. Unger placed the glass beside Strothman and whispered to him, Hauptmann, Leutnant Diesel is gestorben. Strothman digested the news. Danke. Major Wilkins looked between the two men. What's that? My Leutnant has died. I see. Wilkins waved to his orderly, an invisible, bland young fellow named Ned McCleary, who had found a cushy job owing to his time spent in service as an underbutler on the home front. 
Ned had fully intended to come to France to murder swaths of Germans, but he realized straight away that killing in general, and dying in particular, were not, strictly speaking, his cups of tea. He proceeded to make sure that his commanding officers learnt of his skill at the table. Once that was sorted, although he could not escape going to the front lines with the company and risking death by shellfire, he could be certain that, as long as Major Wilkins lived, he would be left behind in the trenches to prepare tea when the going got thoroughly tough. Bring us the burgundy, Ned. The Gevi Chambertin. Ned clicked his heels and went to the side table. Had you served together long? asked Wilkins. Three years. From the jumping off, then? I must say, you boys were brilliant at the beginning. The move through Belgium would have been a stroke of genius had it not triggered our involvement. I dare say Paris would have been yours by the end of September had you not run into the old contemptibles. Ned brought a bottle of red to the table. He presented it to Wilkins, who waved him along. Yes, yes, Ned, that's the one. Ned uncorked it expertly. Wilkins' smile was grim. Three years together. A long stretch. I don't think I have any men left who were with me from the start. At times I find it hard to believe that any of us are still drawing breath. The odds of not walking away from this fray seem steeper every day. They are, said Strothman, almost to himself. Yes, yes, quite. You heard the Canadian lieutenant. Strothman nodded. There was a moment of quiet while Ned filled two glasses with the red. Strothman spoke quietly. It's a Krieg's Academy. And again at Sandhurst, they schooled us on the virtue of sharing the fate of your men. I do see the merit of that now, although not as my instructors intended, perhaps. To die with your men is a true mercy. To live on is to live with their ghosts. You can see the ghosts in the Canadian's eyes. Wilkins sipped the red and nodded. Yes. Perhaps better to die with them than live with the shame. And I pity him. But if I were his company commander, he would face charges of dereliction of duty. I believe that GHQ will feel the same. At the minimum, there will be a court-martial. It's difficult to factor how much luck it would take to be a sole survivor and how much cowardice. If they determine it was cowardice, he may join his men sooner rather than later. What do you think of the Burgundy? Strothman allowed himself a polite sip. Excellent, Major. Wilkins raised his glass. Well, Captain, to your health. For you, the war is over. Strothman considered for a moment, then raised his glass as well. And I am glad of it. A momentary silence stretched into discomfort. It hovered between them as Wilkins passed judgment on his dinner guests. I hope, he said, with quiet superiority, if I am ever in your position, that I do not say the same. To no avail, James struggled to break an old fence railing he had found into kindling. He pushed all his weight onto it with his boots and tried to pull up the skinniest end to snap it in two. Isaiah Taylor passed by with an armful of wood. James smiled his most charming smile at the Negro. Say, boy, will you give me a hand with this? Isaiah pulled up short. He shot a look at James and took the measure of the young man. When he spoke, 
His tone was ice cracking underfoot on a deep, frozen lake. Got a misunderstanding, son. I sure as hell ain't your boy. You want to speak to me, you can call me corporal, and you can do it with respect. Otherwise, I'm just like to go upside your head with this kindling as I am to use it in a fire. You got me, motherfucker? James froze. A squirrel in the road. His father's Ford coming right for it. Y yes Corporal. It pleased the fuck out of Isaiah that his words had their intended result. If he had to bludgeon the little shit for some smart remark in response, he could not rightly say where he would hide the body. He turned his back on the little bullshit cracker and headed toward the camp where Renoir and Durant were setting the fire. James gave up on breaking the railing. It seemed nonsensical if the point was just to burn the ding-dang thing anyway, so he dragged the whole thing after him, scurrying to catch up with Isaiah. Um, Corporal? What's that mean? Isaiah just kept walking. What does what mean? Motherfucker? Isaiah came close to busting a gut. At the camp, Renoir struck a match, and the dead kindling burst into ignition, spreading bright fire upward to the fuel. Durant placed a load of wood beside it. Renoir sat back, popped the cork on the jug of rum, and had a taste. The poisonous, fermented brown sugar's bite and thickness delighted the palate. He breathed in the fumes and offered the jug to Durant. Lieutenant. Durant tilted the jug and had a swallow, allowing it to burn all the way down into his belly. He felt it course into his bloodstream. He had forgotten the lack of food in his stomach and could not recall offhand when he had eaten last. As the rum hit home, the realization struck that he did not care. Isaiah's laughter echoed across the field. You are wondering what is his story? Renoir asked. I don't know myself, but he is the finest soldier I have ever fought beside. I can imagine so. Isaiah ambled up with a grin. He dropped his kindling into the growing pile and pointed his thumb back at James, who trailed along behind like a puppy dog with his ridiculous piece of firewood. This ignorant bitch don't know what motherfucker means. Renoir roared with laughter. Basile de Mer, the fucker of your mother. Check his ears. I am sure it is still wet behind them. Francois came through the pasture gate, carrying his box of strawberry jam tins on his shoulder. Their heavy bag of heads dangled from his other hand. Isaiah caught sight of him first. Uh-oh. Here comes the man with the jam. Francois smiled, holding his trophy aloft. He dropped the sandbag near the stack of firewood and reverently lowered the box of strawberry preserves. My friends, I do not know what we have for dinner, but for dessert. English strawberry jam. Isaiah clicked his tongue. Deputy, how come you still got all them heads? You stole that jam, we're going to be in for it. I did not steal. The cook... He tell me this was a joke. He give me jam to make me go away and take the heads. I care not. I have my jam. Renoir and Isaiah chuckled. James Cox glanced sidelong at Durant. Heads? 
Durant shrugged, uncertain what to think himself. Renoir nudged Durant. Perhaps, Lieutenant, you have an admirer. Durant looked up, unsure what the Belgian meant. Then he saw Caitlin coming across the field, bearing the short stack of blankets. The men made their way to stand as she approached, and she waved them off. Don't stand on my account, gentlemen. I thought you might be able to use some more bedding. Renoir rose, and with an understated grace, he accepted the blankets from Caitlin. Merci beaucoup, mademoiselle. With the hospital moving north, for once we have more blankets than patients. Do you have water? It does not hurt to fill the canteen while we can, said Renoir. We can show you where the well is. Certainly. Renoir picked up the canteen from his pile of kit and tossed it to Durant, who caught it midair. Perhaps, Lieutenant, you would be so kind. Sure, Durant said. As he came to his feet, Isaiah lobbed his to Durant, too. Yeah, Lieutenant, would you be so kind? Yeah, sure. James waggled his hand in the air, as if he was back in primary school. Excuse me, ma'am? Y'all have any luck with that German fella? Caitlin shook her head. We did not. He passed. James swallowed that. Caitlin turned back to Durant. Lieutenant, if you'll follow me. Yes, miss. Thanks. Isaiah, Renoir, James, and Francois watched Durant follow Caitlin across the pasture. Isaiah clicked his tongue. Happy to have a white man, and an officer, no less, hauling water for me. But can't say in retrospect that I don't wish it was me going on a walk with that young lady. James still had a grim look on his face as he revisited Diesel's expiration in his mind. Isaiah watched him chewing it over. What's the matter, Bumpkin? You look like you just ate bad fish. James glanced up. I don't know. That German's the first fella I ever saw die. Sure ain't the last, but good for you. You're getting educated tonight. Hell, while school's in session, here's four more lessons for you. Isaiah picked up Francois' sandbag and emptied their heads at James's feet. James yelped and leapt backward sending Isaiah and Francois into gales of laughter. Renoir smiled. Isaiah grabbed up the jug of rum and had a pull. We're gonna get you a university degree in no time flat, Bumpkin. Get you your fucking doctorate. Caitlin led Durant across the cobbled road to an old cast-iron well pump. He worked the pump handle, and a flow of clear water poured out in a rush. He rubbed his hands beneath the cold water and splashed a handful over his face, clearing the grime. Caitlin examined him closely. He still reminded her of Aiden, although she could not say why. But she saw this was a man, fighting his demons and losing. A thought flashed across her mind. He reminded her more of herself than he did of her dead brother. I'm sorry that you lost your men. We have a fine chaplain if you need someone to talk to. Durant smiled and not quite reach his eyes. Thank you. Don't know that talking would do much good. Caitlin was silent a moment. I've seen a lot of blood since I arrived here. Men's bodies turned inside out. I wake up with their faces in my dreams. I've also seen the men who carried those wounded to hospital or led them into battle. They're every bit as wounded as the ones that are bleeding. Durant wiped the water off his face with his sleeve then placed Renoir's canteen beneath the spigot. 
I'm not a shell shock. I'm all right. I appreciate the concern. Caitlin did not believe him. She knew her instinct was correct, but she was also aware that help was not help if it was not asked for. She nodded. All right? Good night, Lieutenant. Keep safe. Thank you, miss. I mean that. Thank you. Good night. Caitlin turned and headed back to the aid station. Durant watched her go. The canteen overflowed in his hand. The water flashed from cold to warm. Durant looked down. Blood was pouring from the pump's mouth. He stumbled back, dropping the canteen, his heart racing. The pump stopped its flow. A final drop of red ichor fell from the nozzle and splashed in the grass. Durant, in shock, tentatively reached down for the half-empty canteen. He tipped it sideways, and cold, clear water ran out. No sign of blood. Durant caught his breath. He leaned forward and squeezed his temples. Everything hurt. The sun had long finished setting, and night had taken hold by the time Major Wilkins led Strothman and Unger out the front door of the abbey and down the steps. He waved to Sergeant Thomas, who was smoking by the stockade with Private Harry Moss. When he saw the Major coming, Bert dropped the butt and hopped too. At the bottom step, Major Wilkins stopped. Captain, I must apologize for your accommodations. When you're delivered to HQ, the condition should improve immensely. Thank you, Major. It is to be expected. Sergeant Bert Thomas met them at the stairs. Sir? Escort these gentlemen to the stockade. Yes, sir. Let's go, Jerry's. Wilkins saluted Strothman. Good luck, Captain. Strothman returned the salute. Thank you, Major. To you as well. He and Unger trailed Sergeant Thomas across the courtyard to the makeshift cell. Private Harry Moss slung his rifle. He used his flashlight to find the padlock keyhole. It took a second to get the key into the cold steel lock. Then the tumblers clicked and it fell open. As Moss opened the gate, Unger chanced to look across the yard to Diesel's stretcher. The dead man lay shrouded in the sheet Caitlin had procured. Sergeant Thomas gave Unger a nudge from behind. Don't you worry about your mate. He's got grand accommodations for the night. I'll be sure he gets planted nice and deep first thing in the morn. Now in you go. The door slammed shut behind Strothman and Unger. The padlock snapped shut. The fire burned high as Durant made his way back to the camp. He chucked the canteens to Renoir and Isaiah. Renoir tested the weight. This is quite empty, Lieutenant. Durant shrugged. Wells fouled. Ma, no great shame. Water just cuts the joy out of the rum. Renoir handed Durant the jug. Durant drank deeply and passed it to Francois, who had a taste, then gave it in turn to Isaiah. Isaiah raised the jug to his companions. Another day, another dollar. He took a deep, satisfying swallow. James Cox was a little ways off to the side. He stared at Francois's burlap head sack, now refilled and tied off. Isaiah called out to him. Private Bumpkin! No response. James remained fixated on the heads. Isaiah smacked his shoulder. I said, Private Bumpkin! 
James was shocked back into the present. Yeah? As I handed him the jug. Get some hair on that chest, boy. James tilted the jug and gulped down a huge swallow. He paused for breath and swallowed a second gulp. He passed the jug on to Renoir. James smiled proudly. His ability to drink like a man had been hard-earned. That's the one thing we did learn how to do in training. Isaiah nodded. They for sure didn't do nothing to prepare you for this here war. On the other hand, if they taught you how to drink, maybe they got you warmed up for this mess after all. Renoir handed the rum to Durant. Isaiah watched him take a deep pull, and he grinned. Hey, Lieutenant, how'd it go with the female of the species? She lead a horse to water and won't let him drink? Durant shook his head. Nothing like that.